heard about him, and she came and bowed down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile of Syrophoenician origin. She begged Jesus to cast the demon out of her. He said to her, Let the, the children be fed first, for it is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Sir, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he said to her, For saying this, that you may go. The demon has left your daughter. So she went home, found the child lying on the bed, and the demon gone. The word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. I think honesty is always a good thing, and I think brutal honesty is an especially important thing when we approach stories uh, like this one. That this, to me, is probably the most troubling story in the entire Bible. It's not the most troubling thing that happens in the Bible, uh, but it is the most troubling thing that happens because it involves Jesus, what he says, the ways that he acts, and Jesus acts in a very sort of un-Jesus-like kind of way, and it kind of ruffles our feathers, it irks us uh, a little bit. Uh, that what Mark tells us is that Jesus has left behind Galilee, Jewish, uh, Jewish territory, the territory where Jesus spends pretty much his entire ministry in the Gospel of Mark until that final week of his life when he heads uh, to Jerusalem. And he heads into uh, Gentile territory to the city of Tyre, uh, which is a Phoenician city in Syria. Um, and there he meets, can you believe it, a Syrophoenician woman. Um, surprise, surprise, right? It's like if Jesus went to Michigan and met a Michigander, like they're, they're all over the place here, right? Um, and, and so Jesus, even it seems like in Gentile territory, the Gentiles are aware of the things that Jesus is able to do. They are aware of the, the healing that he's able to offer, uh, and it says that Jesus goes to Tyre, and he goes to a house, he tries to escape notice. Um, he tries to, like, keep a low profile, which Jesus does this often in the Gospels, and it, like, never works. Uh, the crowds always know where he is. They seem to always know where he is, and they come in large numbers to find him. Um, in this situation, a Syrophoenician woman comes and finds Jesus uh, where he is in that house. Now, I want you to notice, if you notice when I read the story, Notice this woman's posture as she approaches Jesus. It says that she came and bowed down at his feet. So this is a woman who is approaching Jesus as one pleading and begging for the life of her daughter, the well-being of her daughter. Um, and, you know, this is, nothing, this is nothing unusual in the Gospels, that how many mothers and fathers in Galilee have come before Jesus and fallen down at his feet and asked for healing? Uh, just a couple of chapters earlier, we have Jairus, the synagogue leader, one of the important faith leaders in the town of Capernaum. He comes to Jesus and falls down at his feet, begging for his daughter who is near death. And Jesus immediately goes to the place where she is, or sets off at least in that direction. There's a, a sense of urgency to the compassion that Jesus wants to offer. And we are used to Jesus acting this way. This is what we expect Jesus to do. And this is what we expect Jesus to do when this Syrophoenician mother comes to Jesus and falls down at his feet, begging for the well-being of her daughter. But that's not what Jesus does, is it? Jesus says to her, it is not right to take the children's bread and to throw it to the dogs. Yikes, right? Uh, that is uncomfortable. We should be honest about that. It is an uncomfortable thing that Jesus says. It is something hurtful. It is something very un-Jesus-like. And because it is something very un-Jesus-like, throughout the centuries, Christian interpreters have assembled what looks more like a defense team at a trial 
trying to explain Jesus' actions, saying, well, Jesus certainly didn't mean what he said, or at least it didn't look like it, it didn't look, doesn't look what it actually looks like, or whatever it is. And uh, the, the scholar William Placker in his com- theological commentary on Mark outlines these arguments, these defenses of Jesus throughout the years in this passage. Uh, one scholar, a man named William Barclay, who was known for his progressive views on theology and biblical interpretation, he said, I'm sure the compassion in Jesus' eyes removed any of the hurtful sting of the words that he said. Thank you, Gretchen. Thank you. <laughs> My point exactly. Thank you. <laughs> Laughter from the jury box. Yes. My point exactly. Um, Another scholar, and I'm expecting more laughter from Gretchen at this one, said, I'm sure that Jesus said this in a whimsical way. (laughs) What is whimsical about what Jesus said here? It's locker room talk, yeah. I love you nine o'clockers and you're talking back to me. It's like a Baptist church in here. Um, the, the peasants of Sola to name, uh, who lived in, the, in a remote village in Nicaragua in the 1970s at the height of the Cold War, beneath a brutal dictatorship, they, uh, in their commentary, they noted the wealth of the city of Tyre. It was a wealthy port city. Um, and they, so they, they theorized, they hypothesized that this woman must have been wealthy and therefore an oppressor. Um, now, the peasants of Sola to name, I have found their insights incredibly important and meaningful, uh, insights that come from a very different perspective than my own. Uh, but here, to me, it seems like they're reading a little bit of their own context too much into this story, that we have nothing in the story that indicates that this woman was wealthy or an oppressor or anything of that matter. Um, it seems to me that we're shifting the focus away from what Jesus said to, well, obviously the woman deserved what Jesus said to her. It's an example of, of victim blaming. Um, the ancient church father, St. John Chrysostom, says that Jesus, knowing all things, knew how brilliantly this woman would respond, and so he wanted to give her the chance to demonstrate her faith. At least John Chrysostom sticks closer to what's actually happening in the story, but he reduces the woman to little more than an actor in a staged performance that's put on by Jesus. Um, And then growing up, of course, the answer that I heard was that Jesus was simply testing her faith. And to me, that adds a layer of cruelty to the story, What does that say about Jesus? What does that say about God that when we're going through something really difficult, advocating for the ones that we love, that it becomes an exercise in God or Christ testing our faith, seeing just how faithful we are? Is that the sort of God that we want to serve, that we're happy uh, to serve? Um, So if I was sitting in the jury box and hearing all of these arguments, I might laugh as Gretchen did. I might feel a little skeptical about all of these arguments that are, are being offered here. Uh, they don't seem to explain the story, explain what Jesus is doing. I've been unsatisfied with these answers throughout the years. Um, I've been unsatisfied with those answers. Let's be honest. Let's stop looking for escape routes for Jesus from this story. Let's embrace the difficulty. Let's embrace the comfort. That Jesus says something hurtful and even dehumanizing to a mother who is looking for help advocating for her daughter. She comes looking for healing, and Jesus says, it's not right to take what belongs to the children and to throw it to the dogs. Um, You know, whatever we believe about Jesus and his divinity and his humanity, we should never allow his, uh, his divinity to strip him of his humanity, that Jesus is fully human as well as fully divine, 
Um, and what that means is that he lives within a particular culture, a particular time, and a particular place, which means that he socializes in a certain way. It gives him a particular worldview. Um, it is true for us, it is true for Jesus as well, that where we grow up, the time period in which we grow up in, it shapes who we are, it shapes the ways we look at the world around us, it gives us a lens through which we look at the world. And that means that there are people who are insiders to us, people who have similar experiences to us who we identify with, and then there are people who are outsiders to us, people who are beyond our experience that we sometimes look at with skepticism. And so it seems to me that Jesus, having left Galilean territory, Jewish territory, has entered into Gentile space, and he seems to have some deep-held assumptions about who Syrophoenicians are, Uh, that Jesus seems to be struggling with what's known as implicit bias. Um, So implicit bias is this idea that our thoughts, our unconscious thoughts, shape the way that we interact with the world around us. Um, they're unconscious, we're unaware of them, so we, have, we can have implicit bias about all sorts of different people, someone based off of their race or their gender, what part of the country they're from, sexual orientation, whatever it might be. And often our implicit bias does not necessarily line up with our declared beliefs about somebody. So, for example, and hypothetically, uh, it's Women's History Month, right? And we just had International Women's Day. Um, you know, I believe in the equality of women. It is a belief that I have, and I proclaim that belief. But then there are actions that I could take based off of who I promote, the sorts of jobs that I assign to women or whatever it might be that might reveal that I have some sort of bias against women. Does that make sense? There's, there is some implicit bias there. And so just as, we, um, just as we have that as individuals, we can also have that as institutions. And the church is not immune to this. Um, So several years ago now, there's a sociologist named uh, Richard Wright who conducted an experiment to test implicit bias within the church. And his experiment had to do specifically with how churches relate to people of different races. Um, So what he and his his partner devised was an experiment where they were going to send an email to churches across the country posing as a family looking to join the church. And what they did after consulting with different racial groups was they, they varied the names. They had traditionally white-sounding names, traditionally black and Latinx-sounding names, and traditionally Asian-sounding names. And they were sending these emails posing as uh, a family looking to join the church. Now, there are 300,000 churches in the United States. That is far too many to email all of them. Um, So what they did is they picked random 65 congressional U.S. districts, Um, and they varied them. They had some in more conservative cities in Alabama, some in progressive places like Uh, like San Francisco, and they did it across a wide range of Christian denominations. So they had evangelical, Roman Catholic, and five mainline denominations, including our own. And so they sent these emails to these churches, posing as these people. Now, let me say that not responding to an email is not an indication of implicit bias. Um, Church administrators get busy. Pastors get get busy. I know some pastors who don't respond to any emails. Um, Not me. Um, (laughs) Huh? Just text messages. I know that I have missed some emails, probably from some of you as well. It's not intentional or anything like that. But what did reveal bias was how they compared those numbers. So they sent these emails out over two months, and what they found was that for every 100 responses to white-sounding names, this is overall, 
They received 93 for black or Latinx sounding names and 85 for Asian sounding names. Now, break that down between Catholic, Evangelical, and Mainline. Mainline Christianity actually fared the worst in this study. Uh, for every 100 mainline churches that replied to white-sounding names, 89 replied to black names, 86 to Hispanic, and 72 to Asian. Now, I'm really kind of shocked by those results, and it's an example, I think, again, of how our declared beliefs don't necessarily line up with who we are in reality. Mainline Christianity, of which we are a part of, has for the last several decades proclaimed itself to be progressive, open, and inclusive, and yet, there seems to be some implicit bias, at least with regards to race in this, that's revealed in this study. And let me say, too, I don't share any of this to make us feel bad or ashamed. That's never the goal. Shame and guilt are incredibly unproductive. Um, I share this because it reveals the ways that we all have and hold on to negative assumptions about somebody else that we may not be aware of. You know, this specific experiment dealt with the issue of race, but this can be also, again, like I said, expanded out to gender or sexual orientation, national origin, what part of the country somebody's from, whatever it might be. That we all have hidden assumptions and judgments about those who are outsiders to us. We cannot escape that. And the goal, I think, is to become aware of those implicit biases, to become aware of those things that sort of lie beneath the surface of our lives. And often the way that we become aware of them is when somebody else points them out to us, which is an incredibly uncomfortable thing to have happen. And that's what seems, what, seems to be what happens with Jesus here. That this woman, uh, she calls Jesus out on what he says. Uh, Martin Luther, the reformer Martin Luther, he says... Uh, he says that uh, she catches Christ in his own words. He compares her to a dog. She concedes it and asks nothing more than to let her be a dog. Where will Christ now take refuge? He is caught. Finally, some much-needed honesty in the story. She traps Jesus in his own words. Jesus says something hurtful, even dehumanizing. She could have walked away. She could have said, if this is how Jesus is going to treat me, then I don't want anything to do with him. But she actually does something, I think, far more gracious here. She advocates for herself. She stands up for herself. She says, yes, if you, even if you think that we're dogs, even if we are dogs, as you say, Jesus, we are still worthy of the crumbs under the table. We are still worthy of your love and your respect. We are still worthy of the healing that you have to offer. You cannot ignore us. We are not what you think we are. And then I think something even more remarkable happens. That Jesus could have easily dug his heels in here. He could have easily drawn from all of those arguments that have been used by Jesus' defense team of scholars and biblical interpreters for the centuries. He could have said that, oh, I was just joking, I was saying it whimsically, or didn't you see the compassion in my eyes, or whatever it might be. But Jesus instead allows this woman to pivot him towards love and understanding. He allows her to change his perspective. And he says to her, because you have said this, because you have advocated for yourself your own goodness and love and worthiness, there is healing for your daughter. He pivots towards love and understanding. 
This woman whose name we don't know is one of the great heroes, I think, of Mark's gospel. That she challenges Jesus to see beyond the horizon of his own experience, to attend to what lurked in his own heart. That he allows an outsider to show him something about himself that perhaps he had not yet understood. That he had left behind his own people and gone into a new region and learns that the mission, uh, the, the boundary of his mission and ministry is non-existent. And what's even more amazing to me is that in the next chapter, there's another story in between, but in the next chapter, uh, we all know the story of the feeding of the 5,000 where Jesus uh, feeds a crowd of people on the hillside in Galilee. There's another feeding story in the Gospel of Mark called the feeding of the 4,000. And what scholars believe is that this is a healing or a miracle that takes place in Gentile territory. So Jesus stands there with these crowds of 4,000 people, 4,000 Gentiles, people beyond his own experience, offering abundance, offering bread. The Syrophoenicians no longer begging for the crumbs under the table, but receiving the abundance of God with leftovers. Outsiders like this Syrophoenician woman are important characters in the Gospel of Mark. Um, it is often the outsiders who know something about Jesus, who understand something about Jesus that others don't, that they understand something more about Jesus than even the insiders do. I told you all last week that there's a sort of downward trajectory of the disciples in the Gospel of Mark, the named male disciples of Jesus. But at the same time, you have them juxtaposed with these outsiders, often women who are unnamed, who teach something about who Jesus is. So, very beginning of the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 1, when uh, after Jesus goes back to Peter's mother-in-law's house and uh, she's laying there with a fever and Jesus heals her, she immediately gets up and starts serving all the male disciples. And it's kind of an upsetting image at first because why is this woman who is just sick and in bed now serving everybody? But the word that's used there is the same word that we use for deacon. This woman who is exemplifying a life of service that Jesus has come to show. Or just a couple of chapters before this, we have what's known as the hemorrhagic woman, a woman bleeding for 12 years. She pushes her way through the crowd and reaches out and touches the, the edge of Jesus' garment, and she's healed. And Jesus says, your faith has healed you. An example of the tenacity of faith. Later on during Holy Week, Jesus is sitting in a town called Bethany, around with his disciples and uh, in walks a woman, she has this expensive jar of perfume, and she breaks it open and begins to anoint Jesus. And all of the disciples, who are incredibly frugal, are so upset with the excessive waste. What a waste, they say. But she understands something about Jesus that the male disciples refuse to acknowledge, refuse to understand, that Jesus is heading towards his death. He has not come in conquest and in power, but in sacrifice for others. And she understands that. And then beyond the women of the gospel, the unnamed women, we have at the very end of the gospel, we have a Roman centurion who stands at the foot of the cross, who participates in Jesus' execution seemingly, and he makes a confession of faith. Seemingly this man was the son of God. Outsiders who seem to understand something about who Jesus is. Pay attention to the outsiders in the Gospel of Mark. Pay attention to the ones who are not named. Pay attention to the ones who are only known by their symptomology. Pay attention to the ones who are only known by their affliction because they understand something about who Jesus is that perhaps others don't. 
And this Syrophoenician woman here in this story understands something about who Jesus is that perhaps Jesus has yet to come to terms with. And she changes the trajectory, the course of his ministry. She expands it wider than he had ever imagined before. Pay attention to the outsiders in our own lives. You know, we are a congregation that has prided itself on being open and inclusive and progressive, and rightfully so, we should be proud of that heritage. But we all have blind spots. Even Jesus seems to have had a blind spot. Who sits in our blind spot? Who are the outsiders to us that perhaps we carry around assumptions about that we are not yet aware of? Pay attention to the outsiders. Pay attention to the ones who you only know by a label or a category because they might have something to tell you about who you are. They might have something to tell you about who God is. They might have something to tell you about what our ministry is supposed to look like. Pay attention to the outsiders. Pay attention to the Syrophoenician woman as she still shows up in our lives. The Syrophoenician woman who is worth so much more than the crumbs under the table, but worth the abundant blessing and love of God. Thanks be to God. Amen.